Well, a number of people submitted uh, a range of questions that all fall under one specific category, and I'm really excited to dig into it because this is an area that I am personally very passionate about, and I'll tell you why. You see, a number of questions came in like, how do we raise kids in 2019? How do we raise children to love Jesus and in this ever-changing world? How do I keep my kids passionate about Jesus? And so that's the question that we are tackling today. And I also want to preface this by saying I'm obviously not a parent yet. One day we will have kids, but I'm not a parent yet. So I get that I'm speaking to you from a different level, but I hope that you'll be open to hearing what I have to say because I looked after hundreds of intermediates and teenagers as a youth pastor for over four years. And as a youth pastor, I saw a lot of things and I got to know a lot of kids. In fact, I want to speak to you from two different perspectives because first of all, you might not know this about me, but I have a degree in psychology. For four years, I studied psychology at university, but not what you're probably thinking. I didn't study abnormal psych. I studied developmental psych, which is looking at the social and cognitive neuroscience aspects of of psychology. So what that basically means is I studied the brain and how the brain develops from an infant to an adolescent, and how their brain development actually affects their behavior. And so I want to speak to you, first of all, from a neuroscience perspective, and y'all are about to see a really nerdy side of me. It's about to come out. Um, But secondly, Frosty and I, we were the youth pastors at our botany campus for over four years, and he was there even longer than that. And at that time, we saw hundreds of teenagers get planted in God's house. But we also saw a number of young people walk away from church and walk away from God. And we saw a number of very common threads that related to all of these young people, common threads that you can actually help them avoid. And so I want to speak to you from the perspective of a youth pastor. That's pretty much seen it all. So this isn't just for current parents either. Now, some of you are already tuning out thinking, well, I don't have kids. How does this relate to me? Well, if there's a young person sitting around you, it relates to you. Because as the church, we actually have a responsibility to shepherd our young people. So if you're a parent or want to be a parent one day, or if you're a young person, this message will actually help you better understand yourself as well. So this message is actually for everyone. You see, when young people go through puberty, there are a number of physical and hormonal changes taking place in their body. I'm going straight into this. You guys ready? There's this surge of hormones, but and so for too long, we've believed this misconception that their risky and erratic behavior as young people is due to these physical and hormonal changes. In fact, we say things like, oh, they're just hormonal teenagers, right? We say it all the time when they respond with these bursts of anger, when they forget about their upcoming tests, when they make really dumb decisions. This isn't just a result of their hormones changing or their body changing, but actually adolescence isn't simply marked by puberty. There are also significant changes taking place in their brain. In fact, parts of their brain are still yet to be developed. And in this period of adolescence, especially year seven to 10 at school, their brain is under radical construction. There's this professor of neurology, Francis E. Jensen, that said the teenage brain is not just an adult brain with fewer miles on it. It's a paradoxical time of development. These are people with very sharp brains, but they're just not sure what to do with them. So what should we know about the brain of an adolescent? I want to highlight to you three specific areas that's important for you to understand so that you can better relate to the young people around you. And so young people, you can better understand yourself and how you respond in certain situations. So I want everybody to put your hand on your forehead like this. Good. 
Right behind your hand is what's known as the prefrontal cortex. This part of your brain is responsible for all of your higher functions as a human being. It's amazing. It helps you with rational decision-making, prioritization, impulse control, even empathy. It's incredibly important. It's what's known as the logic center of your brain. It helps you understand the consequences of your actions, helps you analyze the risk, and then make a reasonable and rational decision on how to respond. It's amazing. And it's significantly underdeveloped in our young people, like radically underdeveloped. It's the last part of the brain to be fully matured. So let me just show you a couple um, brain scans. Do we have that next slide? This is a five-year-old, a preteen, a teenager, and a 20-year-old. The blue shows the parts of the brain that's fully matured. As you can see, it starts from the back of the brain and starts to move forward. And Look at this 20-year-old. It's not even fully matured until your mid-20s. So young adults, listen up. This is for you too. So our young people are actually innately wired for risk and passion, and they don't yet have the mental capability to make all of the right rational decisions. So we can't always expect them to. I love how this author and youth worker in the States, Mark Oostreicher, puts it. He said, most people view teenagers as a problem to be solved rather than a wonder to behold. In fact, a lot of people, when we were youth pastors, a lot of parents would call us and they would say, how do I fix my son or daughter? Like it was a problem to be fixed. Whereas science is suggesting that we should actually look at them as a wonder to behold. We should actually look at them as a child of God that's not yet fully developed. And so we can't expect them to respond in the way that an adult would. Instead of trying to fix their behavior and fix them, we should actually try to come alongside them and understand the developmental level they're at. So that's the prefrontal cortex. And then if we can go back to that image of the brain, there's this other part that I want to show you called the amygdala. It's right here. Oh, go back. The other one. Right there in the middle. The amygdala is responsible for all of your emotional responses, okay? The amygdala is also known as the fear center of the brain. Now, we need to know this because of this scientific truth. Adolescents are often responding out of emotion rather than logic, right? They're so emotional. Ask them how their day was at school. Oh, there was so much drama, right? So much drama going on with a young person, so much drama going on with little kids. You wonder why they're so emotional. That's because they're responding out of the amygdala, the emotional fear center of their brain. And their prefrontal cortex, their logic center, isn't yet fully developed. So, of course, their emotions are ruling their behavior. This um, researcher in the field of neurology and spirituality said that the amygdala is the part of your brain that reacts with fear, hatred, anger, and other alarming emotions. But it also participates in the positives. The frontal lobe, though, that's what balances it all out. For instance, when someone cuts you off in traffic, your amygdala says, hurt them now. But your frontal lobe says, no, wait just a minute, right? They got to work together, but one of them isn't fully developed. And there's one other part that I want you to know about, and it's called the anterior cingulate. The anterior cingulate is kind of this purplish region that you can see in there, that bluish region. It's like a buffer between the two, a buffer between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. Now, what this part of the brain actually helps is it helps a young person understand their emotions, but it also helps a young person understand a God who is compassionate and personal. 
It's the part of our brain that actually helps us be less focused on me, 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 and notice the needs of the people around us. So not only is their brain not fully mature, but it's also being overloaded with so much information, especially in today's world. They're constantly advertised at. They're hearing things from every single person all around them. And so there's, they're undergoing this process that's called neural pathway pruning. Maybe you've heard of it. Neural pathway pruning basically means that their brain is deciding to look at all of the information that they've ever learned and they're deciding what to keep and what to eliminate. Their brain is undergoing this process. It's a very critical window of development in their preteen and teenage years. And so that's actually when we need to mo- focus the most on shepherding them in the way that they should go. So is kids' ministry important? 100%. Absolutely. Kids are very receptive to anything that you will teach them, and they're very quick to learn. So we should absolutely start teaching them young. However, it's when they hit those preteen and interme- those intermediate and those high school years that makes all the difference. Because it's at that point that doubt starts to enter their brain. And that's normal. It is normal for your young person to doubt because they're undergoing neural pathway pruning. So literally with everything that they've ever been taught in life, their brain is deciding, should I keep it or chuck it out? This is what's known as the use it or lose it window of time for a young person. The only the neural pathways that are regularly used will stay intact into their adult years. So is this the time that you allow your child to go rogue and independent? Is this the time that you allow your child to decide whether or not they want to come to church with you? My personal opinion is no. More than any other time in their life, this is when you as a parent need to be reinforcing the neural pathways related to faith. This is the time when we as the church play such a significant role in this young person's development because it's use it or lose it. And the the cool thing about the brain is that scientists, neurologists, researchers have actually discovered that it's hardwired for faith. Our brains are hardwired for faith. There is research to prove this. In fact, if you think about that anterior cingulate, that purplish part, the buffer between the two, you can actually strengthen that region of the brain through prayer and meditation and faith-based singing. So you might not even realize it this morning, but when we were singing for about 20 minutes of worship, you were actually strengthening part of your brain and you didn't even realize it. The part of your brain that helps you notice the needs of others, the part of your brain that helps you understand your emotions, the part of your brain that helps you understand a God who is compassionate and personal. So what does all of this mean? It means that if we want to keep our kids passionate about Jesus, we actually have to help reinforce the right neural pathways. And they have to be reinforced consistently. So that looks like having positive relationships with friends of the same faith. Now, I'm not saying that your, friend, your kids should not have non-Christian friends. They totally should and they can. But those friends should not be the main influence on your child's life. Otherwise, those will be the neural pathways that are reinforced. It looks like having a connection to a faith community like here on a Sunday or for teenagers on a Friday night. It looks like a habit of daily prayer and worship, time when they can come to church and enter into a time of faith-based singing. So should we let intermediates and high schoolers choose Netflix over church or choose homework over Jesus or a job over Oxygen Youth? Well, it's up to you parents, but 
whatever you choose, those are the neural pathways that you're reinforcing. Those are the neural pathways that you will reinforce in that child. Remember, it's use it or lose it. Now, I want to talk to you about what this actually looks like. Maybe you've seen a relay race before, right? I hope all of you have seen a relay race before. You at least know what it is. It's where there's four different runners, and each runner can start their leg of the journey when they're officially handed the baton. I usually say baton, so if I slip into that, apologies. And sometimes when I say baton, it becomes out baton. So just one of the three, you know what I'm talking about, right? So they have this, and they can only start their journey of the race once this is officially passed into their hands. Now, this is important because if they fumble it or they drop it, then they're going to be slowed down in their race. If they get it passed on to them outside of what is known as the critical exchange zone, then their race is actually cut short and they can't finish. This exchange zone is actually 20 meters long in the race. 20 meters long, and this zone right here, it actually is very critical, and I think the most critical leg of the race, because whatever happens in these 20 meters actually determines their fate for the rest of the race. And so what I want to illustrate to you today is that this baton represents a child's faith. It represents a child's faith. And for a long time, you've actually been running the first leg of the race. You've been bringing them along to church, getting them connected into power zone. You've been teaching them about who Jesus is and what Jesus did for them. And you've been running with them, hoping that if they were going to take this baton on, this would be it. You've been teaching them. But it's once they reach those intermediate years that they need to start running. But here's the thing. The first runner runs with the second runner until it's officially passed. They don't just toss it to them and say, well, good luck. But they run with them, alongside them, until it's officially been handed off into their hand. Now, if this represents faith, then that exchange zone represents their adolescence. It represents their adolescent years in this use it or lose it window of time. So is this the point in time where you just slow down with the faith talk and you say, well, son, do you want this baton? Because guess what? You're not the only one holding something out to them. There are countless people holding things out to them and their brain is so confused Faith is not the only thing that they're struggling with or wrestling with. They've got a million people saying, keep me. I can bring you strength. Keep me. I can bring you success. Keep me. I can bring you a love. And it's no wonder they start to doubt and question because their brain is undergoing neural pathway pruning. And they're deciding what to keep and what to eliminate. Thanks, guys. They're deciding what to keep. And what to eliminate. So is this the time that you slow down with the faith talk? No. This is the time when you actually need to come alongside them and help them make sense of their faith. Answer their questions. Wrestle with them on this topic until they are fully matured and able to run on their own. But too often, too often, hear me, well-meaning parents, well-meaning, I want you to hear my heart on this, well-meaning parents end up pushing the wrong baton into the hands of their sons and daughters. 
As a youth pastor, I've seen it happen over and over again. One of the hardest things about my job as a youth pastor was when I was fully dedicated to running next to a young person to make sure that this baton of faith was successfully handed on into the hands of a young person. And then a well-meaning parent unintentionally distracts them with something else. And then that parent complains that their son or daughter is no longer in church, but they don't even realize that they distracted them with something else at such a critical time of their development. And so I want to share with you the three most common things that actually pull teenagers out of church, things that you can actually help them avoid. But remember, the brain's not fully developed until their mid-20s, so this applies to young adults too. The first thing that we see is the baton of work. You know what they hear with this one? Get a job. Get a job. Make money. Make money. Do something with yourself. Sometimes this is all a young person hears. And I get it. There's some families where you need the teenager to start contributing to the finances. I get that. But this becomes an issue when it fully pulls them out of a faith community. You know what happens? Sometimes people are so committed to coming to youth on a Friday until they get offered that Friday night shift at work. And teenagers don't know how to say no to somebody offering them money. So they take it once. And they say, don't worry, I'll be back next week. And then all of a sudden, they're rostered on every Friday because their manager doesn't care. And if they could get them once, they can get them every Friday. And then they're fully pulled out of a youth community. And they say, Darcy, don't worry, I'll be there on Sundays until they get the Sunday shift. And then you never see them again. This happens to so many teenagers and young adults. This often gets reinforced by parents, and they try to use, I'm sorry, but excuses like this, and they'll say, well, they're developing really good life skills. They're old enough to make their own decisions. You know, they're becoming more independent, et cetera, et cetera. I've really heard it all. But could I lovingly challenge you with Mark chapter 8, verse 36, that says, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? You see, every time that you tell them to get that job, take that shift, make some money, you are reinforcing that work is more important than church. What you're really saying to them is that making $40 on a Friday night or on a Sunday morning is actually more important than being planted in a faith community. And it doesn't matter how hard I tried as the youth pastor to try to put the baton of faith back in their hand if someone else was distracting them with the baton of work. Frosty and I have actually decided that we won't allow our future children to get a job if it means compromising their faith. Because we'd way rather have them be planted in God's house than chasing after wealth. The second one I see is the baton of non-Christian relationships. Now, this represents friendships too, but what I'm really talking about is a non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend for young people. Hear me on this. Sometimes we have some of the strongest runners in our youth ministry, teenagers that are excelling way faster than their peers. They're, they're preaching, they're leading worship, they're on fire for God, they're loving it. We are elevating them into positions of leadership and influence because of the call that is on their life. And then the boyfriend walks in or the girlfriend comes on the scene, somebody that completely takes their eyes off of Jesus. And they say that this person's so nice. And he's such a good guy. Or she's a really sweet girl. We hear it all the time. That's my, my boy voice. <laughs> a 
person that they say claims to support their faith but really wants nothing to do with it, a person that actually the parent has been too hesitant to push to, to put up stronger boundaries with their son or daughter because they're afraid if they don't allow this person into their son or daughter's life, then they're going to push their son or daughter away. And over and over and over again, some of our strongest runners have been completely derailed by a non-Christian relationship. And for a teenager, it happens in a matter of months, every single time. And then there's this one. The baton of worldly success. You know what they hear with this? They hear, you need to study. You need to be the best. I've invested so much into your education, so don't you dare waste it. You better make us proud. Now, you might be thinking, well, is that bad? Is that bad to want those things? Well, I know this so well because this is the baton that derailed me. I didn't have a boyfriend in high school to distract me. Nor did I ever work a job that would prevent me from going to church. But what I did have was this insane pressure from my parents to succeed and be the prized daughter. And so that's what became my priority. And so they would allow me to skip church in order to study for a test. I can count on one hand the number of times I went to a youth group in high school because I was always focused on my academics and leadership roles outside of church. Now, sure, I was a good kid. I was smart. I was kind. I was involved in my community heaps, but I was grounding myself in worldly success. And so this is the neural pathway that got reinforced in my brain as a high school student. And at that point, faith was just merely a good option. And so by the time I went to uni and moved to Boston, outside of my upbringing, outside of what I was raised in, it was super easy to walk away from the baton of faith. And I got involved in the wrong crowd. Parents, I know that you mean well when you want your child to succeed and be smart and have a brilliant job. I I know that you mean well, and all of that is well and good. But again, why gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Why not teach them to value both? Education and faith can coexist beautifully. The fact that we have a school attached to our church emphasizes how much we believe in the value of education. But more important than their worldly education is the condition of their soul. That's more important. You know, when Christian parents force their teenagers to stay home on a Friday night and study rather than coming to youth, I personally think they're missing a very critical piece of their young person's development because what they're teaching them is that school and success is actually more important than their faith. You know, if they're stressed from school, if they're anxious about a test, if they're struggling with their peer groups, if they're struggling with their identity, the best possible place for them to be is not isolated in their bedroom studying but really overthinking all of the social dynamics playing out in their phone the best possible place for them to be is actually grounded in a faith community, like oxygen on a Friday night, voltage on a Sunday morning, getting to the young adults hangout after this. The best possible place for somebody to be when they are stressed and they don't know the answers is actually to be around people that can love them and champion them and understand where they're at in their critical stage of development. And so we actually need to partner together in this critical exchange zone. Because the parents, we want to we support you. We want to champion you. And our youth leaders and our kids leaders want to do whatever they can to get alongside your children. But it requires a partnership. 
It's, it requires championing the baton of faith above all other options. So how do we do it? How do we keep our kids passionate about Jesus so that when they run through their teenage years and into their young adult years, they don't drop this one? How do we make this the main priority? Well, I want to finish with three main tips, and so Keys can join me now. I've got three tips for all of us. First one is this. Don't flinch. Don't flinch. Seriously, when they mess up, because they will, don't act so shocked. They are literally operating out of the emotional center of their brain. They respond with emotion over logic majority of the time. And so they can't always anticipate the consequences of their actions because their brain's not yet fully developed. And so when you respond to them with anger and over-the-top frustration, it is only natural that they will either, one, lash back at you with anger, or two, completely shut you out. You know, teenagers, they tell me outrageous things all the time, literally all the time. And I have two different responses. My internal response is, are you kidding me? How could you not see that was going to happen? But my external response as a youth pastor, as someone who knew where they were at in their stage of development was, oh, wow, tell me how that happened. There's a difference. There's something that doesn't actually trigger and heighten their emotional response, but says, help me understand you. Help me understand what thinking went on in that moment when you made that decision. We've got to remember where they're at in their journey and respond with patience and grace. Scripture tells us to. Ephesians chapter 6 verse, thir- verse 4 says, Fathers, don't exasperate your children, but raise them up with loving discipline and counsel that brings the revelation of the Lord. I'm reading out of the Passion Translation, and in a footnote of this, this is literally words in the Bible. Hear me. Here's the footnote. In other words, fathers should show consideration for the different levels of understanding and experience that children possess, dealing with them at their level or risk causing them loads of heartache. Y'all, that's in the Bible. We've got to understand that they're at different levels of development, and we have to respond at their level or risk causing them loads of heartache. So don't flinch. They will shock you. But internal response, external response. Number two is create dialogue. Create dialogue. See, too often we want to tell our sons and daughters what to do and what not to do without telling them why. And I'm sorry, parents, but because I said so is not a good reason. They actually need to understand why. They're responding out of the emotional center of their brain. They're trying to make sense of this world. They're still developing. And so when they're asking why, it's not to be frustrating, but they're truly trying to understand. When your five-year-old says why a hundred million times a day, do your best to try to give them the what behind the why. Don't just say because I said so, because that actually won't help them. Dialogue is not a linear process from you to them. But dialogue is this circular exchange where you actually hear their voice, respect their dignity, withhold your immediate judgment, and then create this space where the two of you can reach a conclusion together. Remember, their brain is still developing. They're still slowly learning how to make the right decisions in life, the reasonable, rational decisions. And so we can't get angry that they're not there yet. But we've got to create this dialogue that leads them to making the right decision. And then pro tip, make it in such a way where they feel like they got there themselves. Number three is model the way. 
model the way. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 through 7 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Because here's the thing, parents, you, you can't do it on your own. Youth pastors cannot do it on their own. They say it takes a village to raise a child. And church, we're the village. We are the village of people that needs to be committed to doing everything possible in this critical exchange zone. Because what happens in those intermediate and teenage years will actually determine what happens in their adult years. Remember, it's use it or lose it. So what are we reinforcing? Instead of responding to them with anger when they mess up, let's choose grace. Let's choose patience. Let's choose dialogue in this circular exchange where we can understand them. They actually love it when you can ask them authentic, tough, and thought-provoking questions and then help guide them to the right answer. Don't just simply tell them what you want them to hear, but more than anything, we've got to model the way. And we've got to run with them, alongside them, until it's officially passed into their hands. And then we've got to start running alongside somebody else that's struggling until it's officially passed into their hands because then they can replicate that for future generations. And what you teach them now will actually impact their kids and their kids' kids. And so what are you championing and trying to place into their hands? Because you have this beautiful opportunity to shape the neural pathways in their brain so that they can be hardwired for a lifetime of faith a lifetime of trusting Jesus, a lifetime of knowing that they don't have to do this all on their own, but they've got the strength of God walking with them. We've got to choose to model the way. So you know how we keep our kids passionate about Jesus? We have to be passionate about Jesus. We have to engage during praise and worship. We have to lead the way and show them how to live a godly lifestyle. We have to show them what it means to serve and put others' needs above our own. We have to show them that having a consistent daily habit of prayer and worship will actually strengthen their brain. And it will strengthen them as an individual. We model the way because we're the village. We model the way because we're the ones championing them. We're the ones trying to understand them. So my question that I'll leave you with is what are you doing to place the baton of faith into the hands of a young person? And what could you do better? Let's pray. If you're a parent, would you just lift your hands in this room? I wanna pray for you. God, I thank you so much for all of these parents that have arms lifted. I pray that through this, they have a greater revelation and a greater understanding of their own sons and daughters. I pray that they're able to have this circular exchange of dialogue where they can truly get alongside their sons and daughters and learn what is going on in their brain, in their development, in their life. God, I pray that if they're sitting next to their kid, that this would actually create a moment of discussion and dialogue between them where they could journey this together. I pray that you would give these parents strength, give them courage, give them wisdom and insight, give them them passion so that they can lead the way. And I ask for that in Jesus' name. I'm going to pray one final quick prayer. But I know that there's some people in this room that haven't actually started their journey with Jesus, and I don't want to walk away from here not giving you that opportunity. So with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment.
to raise your hand and say, yeah, Darcy, count me in. I already see that hand. I love that. You're eager. God loves you and God sees you. And I specifically think that there are some parents here where you've been challenged in this message to actually become more passionate in your own faith, to be more surrendered in your own faith, to not pretend like you have it all together, but to say, when I am weak, God, you are strong. And so this is a moment, if you've never met Jesus, if you've never started the journey with him, or maybe you're very far from it, this is your moment to pick up the baton of faith again. So if that's you, on the count of three, I just want you to lift your hand. One, two, three. Awesome. I see that hand. God sees you too. God sees the love that you have for people. Is there anybody else that's saying, yeah, Darcy, count me in. Count me in to life with Jesus. Awesome. Awesome. Let's pray. If you lifted your hand, I want you to pray this sincerely in your heart. Say, dear Jesus, I come to you now in need of your grace. I can't do it on my own. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. I need your protection. God, would you be the Lord and the Savior of my life? All I have is yours. In Jesus' name, amen.